0: Hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is George Breer. I'm head of events content here at Sports Pro. And as always, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Tom Bassam, Sports Pro's off-platform editor. But today we're joined by another Tom. Mr Tom Behan, CEO and co-founder of Castor. Tom, great to have you along with us. Fantastic to be here, guys. Thank you for having me. It's been a couple of years since we've had you on the Sports Pro I know you spoke at Sports Pro Live a couple of years ago. I think it's fair to say a few things have changed since then. Yeah, I've definitely got a few more grey hairs and wrinkles than I did back then, but hopefully for the right reasons. So how's things been since we last caught up? It's an exciting journey that Castor's been on.
1: It is. It's a very exciting journey. I think we're lucky to operate in an incredibly... Exciting market. You guys know better than anyone, the sports landscape is one that's been through a period of, I don't think it's an overstatement to say seismic change in probably the last five years or so. I think particularly since covid covid was a catalyst that really um accelerated a number of those changes that were already happening and we being an entrepreneurial business have been able to pivot and capitalize on those so if i think about the ongoing globalization of sports the digitization of sports the opportunity to better engage with connect and ultimately monetize fans this is an incredibly exciting landscape and beyond that sports and particularly my market sports merchandising sportswear has not had a huge amount of new entrants disruptors challenges innovators it's been dominated i'm 34 years old really by the same brands certainly for my generation as long as i can remember and i think as with any sector where you don't have new entrants or new challenges there's a risk that things become a little bit complacent or stagnant so we are really lucky to operate in the sector that we do. And um,
0: hopefully, we've done some quite exciting things in the last few years. So, that it'd be good to go back. I know you were founded in 2015. As you say, the activewear market is one that's dominated by some big, you know, household, heavy hitting names for a very long time. But what was it that you saw in the apparel, the activewear market, in the sponsorship side as well, that you saw as being ripe for disruption and ready for a new entrant? So, th- there's two parts to that
1: answer. And the first, isn't really a good answer for a podcast, but it's true. It is just what we're passionate about. So I co-founded Castor with my brother. We both come from a, to my mind, very normal working class background in Merseyside. Don't have any entrepreneurial background in a family whatsoever. So there wasn't kind of anyone that we could look up to and ask questions about starting a business. So everything that we've done, we've learned on the job. And when we started Castor, the mindset was no more or less complex than... We're gonna work harder than anyone else. We're gonna make more sacrifices than anyone else. We're gonna be more committed than anyone else. We're just gonna re- refuse to give up until we make this thing successful. We had no definition of what success would be whether that was a hundred million turnover, one million a billion like we didn't think like it was just we're not gonna stop until we make this thing a success and the only way that you can follow through on that mindset and stick to it is if you are deeply and genuinely passionate about what you're doing. And the only thing that Phil and I are deeply and genuinely passionate about is sport. So that was really the genesis of Castor. I mean, my alarm goes off at 5 a.m. every day. My missus hates it. Not many people are awake at that time, but I love it. And the only reason I get out of bed nine days out of 10 with a smile on my face is because I'm doing something that I genuinely love. The second reason though, I guess kind of touches upon your question, Passion alone ain't going to get you very far in life. It'll get you somewhere, but it certainly doesn't get you to the point where you you build the type of business that we have with Castor. As we started to apply a more analytical process or approach to to that initial passion, we looked at the global sportswear landscape. You look at the secular long-term drivers of the market people consumers being more health and fitness and well-being focused massively accelerated by covid where people really care about that with flexible working people dressing slightly different dressing a bit more casually and active wear what i'm wearing today lightweight chinos and a technical hoodie you can go to meetings wearing this outfit in a way that you probably couldn't 10 or 15 years ago so that looking at the long-term drivers of the sector and really looking at the market and saying this is far too big a market Globally, for it to be dominated by Nike and Adidas, that doesn't make sense to me. I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go and speak to the founder of Nike or anyone like that about what they felt the opportunity was or wasn't, or how kind of what numerically that opportunity looked like. But it just intuitively, innately felt to us that there has to be space in this market globally for someone to build a premium alternative to those brands. So that was the idea behind Castor. I mean, we're from Merseyside, we're very proud to be a Northwest-based business. We were definitely inspired by Umbro, a very strong brand back in the 90s, was Northwest-founded. Reebok, similarly, was founded in the Northwest. So the Northwest as a, a region does have a lot of uh, kind of heritage in sportswear. On our mindset, maybe it was the naivety of youth was well, if we don't do it, who else will? We believe there's an opportunity here. Excuse my language. F- it. What's the worst that can happen? We didn't have anything to
2: lose. Let's go and try and build something that we're really proud of. And that's what we tried to do. Am I right in thinking that you got your startup funds from your parents remortgaging their house?
1: Yeah, so there was a couple of steps before that. So we'd had this idea. We we both came from sports backgrounds, originally myself in football, fill in cricket. Neither of us were good enough to make it at the highest level. So we had to go off and get what I kind of call the period of my life where I had a real job. So I worked in finance, not because I'm particularly passionate about finance. It was basically where can I earn as much money as quickly as possible to help me start Castor. So I was in finance. My brother had a similar job. During that period, we knew that we wanted to start Castor, so we were kind of putting the ideas together, started to write a business plan. I was convinced that I'd written one of the best business plans in the history of capitalism, um, but strangely, the rest of the world didn't agree with me. So we, we would go out and speak to these kind of angel investors, high net worth individuals, hustle to try and get these meetings and pitched this idea that we want to create a British sportswear brand, a premium brand that competes with Nike and Adidas and and offers the market something different to those guys. With hindsight, not unsurprisingly, those investors didn't think that two young guys in their 20s with no experience had a huge chance of being successful competing with Nike and Adidas. So everyone said no, and that was a tough time, and, and it was during that period that our mum and dad said to us well we believe in you they don't have a big house they work very hard to pay off their mortgage and they remortgaged that house having worked for a long time to pay it off to give us i think it was like 30 odd grand 40 odd grand something like that give us the funds to to help us get castor off the ground and every entrepreneur is different there's no singular route to success but i can only speak from our personal experience when something like that happens when our parents did that for us you basically say there's no way that this thing isn't going to be successful again i don't know how far we're going to get i don't know what the future looks like but i'm not going to stop until we can pay them that money back so yeah they helped us
0: out at the start and thankfully it's all worked out okay i'm intrigued to know when that funding comes in what are sort of those initial early steps that you know allow you to get the business off the ground so in terms of the first samples you know first going to market what does that approach look like and how can you essentially use that challenger brand mindset to do something different to the Adidas and the Nikes?
1: Firstly, you've just got to hustle. There's so many people that I speak to, I guess now that we've been lucky enough to have a decent level of success that ask me like, Oh, what, what did you do to start a business and how do you be successful? And, almost they think that you're going to be able to tell them the answer and they're going to be able to apply that answer and be successful themselves. And I guess as with anything in life, the reality is very different. You just have to hustle. You have to have that relentless, intensive, driven mindset where you're going to get so many knockbacks, so many challenges. There's so many difficulties and hardships that you go through, but you've got that tunnel vision that I'm just going to keep moving forward i'm just going to keep this thing progressing like i remember going to meet super super successful people both in the industry and outside who i had no right to be in a room with but if you're clearly and authentically passionate about what you're doing it's amazing how people Kind of align with that and want to help you and want to be part of your story. So the first part is there's no getting away from it. There's no shortcut. You just have to hustle. You have to work incredibly hard. You have to be so passionate about what you're doing. That is going to be the thing at the start, more than any business plan, more than any financing, more than anything else. That is going to be the singular thing that helps you get from zero to one. Beyond that passion though, no, whilst it's so important alone, it isn't enough. You need to be laser focused on what makes you different. So back then we didn't have any team partnerships. It was right at the beginning and the singular thing we said is we have to be a premium alternative. We want to be the Tesla of the sportswear market. We want to be the Spotify. I was used the analogy of the automotive market. I want to be Range Rover. I don't want to be so premium that I'm Rolls Royce where only one percent of people can ever afford to buy my product but distinctly respected for high quality product engineering performance technicality and if i'm laser focused on being a premium high quality alternative to those guys i've got a chance of being successful so in the early days it was all about really lasering in on what makes you different once you know that That drives all of your decision-making, how you build your website. We didn't have any money for marketing. All the money had gone on the first samples, but it drove, where we are going to make that product? Is it in China or is it in Portugal? Well, if I'm going to be premium, it has to be in the best factories in the world. Where the fabric's going to come from has to come from Italy, the best fabrics in the world. How am I going to test it? I've got to go, we've called it tested beyond endurance, the commitment to marginal gains those details that really make you stand out once you know what it is that makes you different how you want to stand out from your competitors that drives all of your decision making and of course it evolves and as our business has grown that mindset will naturally need to evolve kind of grow or die if you're not kind of changing you're standing still but the fundamental north star has never changed we want to be a premium alternative to nike and adidas we want to try and disrupt those guys and that's really driven all of our
0: decision making right from the beginning i think it's interesting you made the comparison to spotify and tesla because to me one those two businesses are particularly interesting because they're tech driven disruptions of quite traditional industries right so ones that were almost ready for the taking when it comes to tech And same can really be said of Castor in the sense that you were able to start as a digital first business, direct to consumer, e-commerce led, as opposed to being constrained by bricks and mortar stores or, you know, needing to appeal to the mass market. So how was that digital first approach? A, an advantage when you're first starting, you know, the opportunity to essentially reach people at mass scale and B, when it comes to scaling that business down the line, how important has that digital first approach been? And was that really planned from the get-go? The best way to
1: start answering that is, what was it? Let me answer the, the last bit first. No, it wasn't planned from the get-go. I'd love to say that Um elon musk or jeff bezos i mean I, I could say that but i'd be lying unfortunately so i uh, know from the get-go like i said it was i need to make enough money to pay off my mum and dad's mortgage and until that i can't think about anything else and that mindset i'll never lose that just that wanting to get up before anyone else and work later than anyone else even if i could even if i wanted to i don't think i could change that so no it wasn't planned at the start but very quickly, we recognize that not just being digital first, but being data-led would be a fundamental difference. If you look at the big guys, Nike and Adidas generate the lion's share of their revenues through third-party retailers. No problem in that. If you're doing $30 billion plus a year revenue as Nike are, you have to work with third-party retailers. There's simply no other way of physically getting that volume of product into the market without those guys. But again, I look at everything through a competitive lens. If I'm going to compete with them, if I'm going to offer consumers something different, I need to go and do something different to them. So not to say that third-party wholesale doesn't have a place in the the product or the distribution mix, because it does, but we need to be digital first and data first. I need to understand my customers better than anyone else. I need to have a relationship with them that's richer and deeper and more integrated than anyone else have. You build over time by having that mindset, this virtuous flywheel where as you acquire more customers, the data points, the understanding that you have of them increases ever more and as you get better at interpreting that data and building the data analytics team internally which we've worked incredibly hard to do you leverage that data better you apply it to other parts of the business and it is highly synergistic it helps you grow the business not just faster and in a more cost efficient way but in a synergistic way where you're saying if i know what that customer wants faster than nike or adidas do i'm going to be able to win against them so digital first has been core to the approach launching a website in dubai or australia or japan is a hell of a lot easier than opening a physical store in those markets you can absolutely do that as well but digital has really helped us scale as quickly as we have but it's what you do with that digital platform and understand the data that really
0: allows you to stand out and compete did it surprise you Anything you learned there? So, I mean, it's the famous cliche, I guess, in startups that you think you know your customer until they buy from you, and then really all those assumptions get challenged. You have to pivot, change. Was it largely as you expected that initial journey, or were there some fast changes that you need to make to sort of adjust to that customer?
1: the latter we didn't really have any expectations because we were doing it all off the bat we were learning as we go along again the Silicon Valley mindset of move fast and break stuff we 100% subscribe to that which I do think works really well equally sport is an inherently emotive highly scrutinized market so breaking stuff sounds lovely until you break stuff and you're like, oh, I've got to fix it with a (laughs) massive spotlight on me. So it sounds lovely in a textbook in real life. It's a bit harder when your phone is ringing at 10pm on a Friday night with a problem, but overall, it absolutely is the right thing to do. But I think the most important thing is the philosophy. So building a culture, we're now kind of more than 500 people in the business, building a culture where those 500 people Know that what I want from them as the founder, the co founder, is to take risks, is to try new things, is to think outside the box. Yes, be led by the data, but use your intuition. Again, we're a challenger brand, we're a disruptor. We don't win by following anyone. We have to push the boundaries, we have to do things differently. If you can build a culture where there's 500 other people beyond me committed to that mindset, that's where really exciting things start to happen. People are led by the data, but they're making decisions, they're taking risks, they're being bold. That's where really exciting things happen.
2: With your approach to data, kind of which came first? Because I've heard you talk previously about Goldman Sachs Man. Was Goldman Sachs Man identified prior to your data, or was that something that you're like, we're seeing this pattern in our customers? that means that we should therefore adapt our products to this person. And that person is Goldman Sachs, man.
1: I should be an ambassador for Goldman Sachs. I need to get paid. (laughs) I'll give them so much free free advertising. If there's anyone listening, I'm open to offers. But the Goldman Sachs analogy, that was in no way data-led. So again, back to when we started the business, we had no marketing budget. We bought this stock and no factory, when you're a startup, gives you anything on consignment. So you're paying upfront for that stock which is not great for cash flow so all of the money had gone out the stock comes in and you're like all right i've got to sell this stuff now and the mindset back then was we want to have clear blue space between us and nike and adidas so if they're talking to the mass market we're going to talk to the exclusive high-end premium market and the caricature that we built around that was the goldman sachs man we didn't do women's wear at that time so it was men only Again, only because we were two brothers and we thought there's marginally less chance of us up if we're creating menswear than if we're doing womenswear as well. That has now since changed and womenswear is one of the fastest growing parts of the brand. But the Goldman Sachs man analogy was us with no data at that point before we started saying, this is a guy that is in the office five days a week at 7 a.m., but is in the gym four days a week at 6am with a personal trainer I'm probably doing a triathlon or running a half marathon at the weekend. That is the person that goes on expensive holidays, drives a nice car, lives in a nice postcode. That person will pay a bit more for high quality sportswear, highly technical sportswear and a more premium brand than Nike or Adidas. So that was the initial thesis that we had that we could compete against the big guys. It worked. It worked really well. That's Goldman Sachs type man. And there are others, JP Morgan, Rothschild, there's lots of other banks out there that were <laughs> that were buying the brand. But what we found very early, and this is where the data started to lead the business, was that Goldman Sachs man in inverted commas would go to New York or Tokyo or Singapore or South Korea on business. They'd take their castor kit with them. They'd go in the gym or they'd go for a run whilst they were on that business trip. And then we'd see an influx of orders from literally a one mile radius of that office that they were visiting so very much grew by word of mouth which was lucky because we didn't have any marketing budget at that time but because we were digital we would get data on all of those customers we could track where these customers were buying from you start to pick up the correlations and then you start to refine your approach your marketing your product your websites where you open your distribution centers led by the customer data that's flowing in so
0: very early on we realized the value of data and that's led our decision making ever since i want to move away from some of the data bits and talk a little bit about some of the big names um, that castor have signed up and in particular probably one of the pioneering deals for you guys which was with andy Mai for the AMC range. Talk me through how that happened. You know, I think e-commerce certainly in the apparel space has a very rich history of athlete investors and, and athlete endorsements, you know, starting really with the Michael Jordan um, deal with Nike. So what was the thinking behind that and sort of how did it come about? It was a couple of years after we'd started the business. So we must have registered a company in
1: 15, as you referenced at the start. We didn't launch until... September 16, which I remember because it was after the Olympics. I think we did the deal with Andy in like 18, something like that. So we'd grown the business. I guess it was working in inverted commas. We were very unfashionable at the time in the sense that Phil and I were super focused on profit and if we can kind of think back to 18 19 20 interest rates were zero in vogue at the time was for kind of any direct to consumer brand would raise a load of venture capital investment they'd pump that investment into facebook and instagram or google marketing they would grow revenue The unit economics wouldn't quite add up and they wouldn't be profitable, but that didn't matter because then they'd go into another kind of VC round six months later and and onward it went. And we never subscribed to that. Again, probably because of the genesis of how we'd started the business and needing to be focused on profit, feeling that unless you generate profit and cash flow you're not a real company you're always kind of exposed and reliant on other people which we never wanted to be so we'd grown quickly but organically the customer that we hoped existed that more premium discerning affluent consumer had existed we were able to acquire them they would generally spend quite a lot of money average transaction value was high on the website because we were direct to consumer our margins were solid And then we had really good reorder rates. Once they tried the product, they would generally come back. So it was a really solid, fundamentally robust brand at that point. But as with any entrepreneur, you're always thinking about what next. You've got that big vision in your head. Our vision was to create a premium British sportswear brand that competed on the global stage. And we realized that the only way that we could fulfill that dream and compete on the global stage was by having global athletes i didn't subscribe to influencers like i wanted authoritative genuine athletes wearing wearing my brand the only way that we could become a global brand was by having global athletes wear us so we didn't have a lot of money back then so what we do is gift product to the people around athletes we couldn't do teams that was outside of our capability at that point so we looked at Individual sports, so like tennis and golf, were the were the obvious ones for us. There was a couple of others, but we'd gift product to people around athletes that we thought were cool. The personal trainer, the masseur, the coach, the psychologist—all of these guys. I suppose it's back to this hustle mindset, basically just thinking that they're going to keep seeing this brand and think, "What the hell is that?" And that's exactly what happened with Andy. Kept seeing this brand. We'd given it to all the people around him. I'm a big believer in the old-fashioned saying of the harder you work, the luckier you get. And as luck would have it, Andy was coming to the end of his previous kind of kit partnership deal. He kept saying this brand, he asked someone what it was. Someone said, oh, it's this brand from Merseyside started by two brothers. I can't speak for Andy, but I think the fact that we're two brothers, obviously he and Jamie have been two brothers that started in Dunblane in Scotland and gone on to achieve kind of big, amazing things in their lives. So I think that resonated and uh, I was invited to go and meet Andy, which I still remember to this day, sat in the champions room at Wimbledon with all these amazing kind of pictures on the wall. And he knows how to set a meeting then. <laughs> you could put a gun to my head. so I wouldn't be able to tell you what I said in that meeting, but whatever I said, Andy clearly resonated with him to a degree. And basically it became quite apparent quite quickly that there was a mutual interest, mutual values in terms of, like, I love Andy. I think he's the perfect example of our better never stops ethos where through grit, determination, desire, resilience, as well as a huge amount of talent, of course, he's won three Grand Slams in an era of tennis where probably three of the best players of all time, Djokovic, Federer and Nadal, have been at their pinnacle. Of course, he's got his gold medals from the Olympics as well. On top of that, phenomenal success for me, a phenomenal inspiration. I think he's one of the greatest British athletes of all time. I felt he was the perfect embodiment of what we wanted to be challenging the big guys. So I was like, we've got to find a way of making this work. So fortunately for us, Andy and his team were really open to being creative and basically his market value was at a certain level. We couldn't reach that level. So the way that we bridged the gap was for him to become an investor in the business. Huge kudos for Andy for
0: doing that. A lot of people wouldn't. And again, thankfully it's worked out pretty well for everyone. Well, I wanted to, I think that leads us into nicely if we're talking about investment and we've covered, you know, the the journey from its inception, you know, and and actually getting it off the ground. But it's definitely felt as if the last six months have been a a real watershed moment for the business. Speaking of investment, you've raised 100 plus million in October last year. Yeah, that's right. So tell me, what's that money being used for? And what's the sort of the scale up journey now for Castor? You've
1: got to start by taking a step back. The business had continued to grow really strongly really organically we were pretty reluctant to bring in too much institute or bring in outside investors unnecessarily and certainly bring in institutional investors because i mean there's a lot of value that they add. but also we felt that our biggest usp was being entrepreneurial was being a speedboat in a market of oil tankers was having that tesla spotify mindset competing against the big guys and that served us incredibly well and when you bring on investment you need to be realistic that that is going to evolve and change things to an extent so for us it was really important to wait for the right timing to bring on investment the big catalyst that drove that change was our decision to go into team sports so like I say, we'd grown as a direct-to-consumer brand. We'd done partnerships with people like Andy and Adam Petey and Josh Butler and Owen Farrell that had kind of further grown the brand and things were going really well. And we realized that, but again, I suppose this entrepreneurial mindset of always looking for what's next, where can you add value, where can you innovate and disrupt. We looked at the market for team sports and felt that market is fundamentally broken. It's been dominated by the same brand's for a generation again, as we said earlier, but really Nike and Adidas focus all of their resources on a very small number of teams at the very top of the sport, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, Manchester United. They'll really focus on supporting those guys well and not really focus on anyone outside of that elite. And as soon as you went and spoke to people in the market, that became abundantly clear. There was a lot of dissatisfaction The Teams that were very ambitious, had huge, deeply passionate fan bases, often international, if not global fan bases, but the big brands with their multi-billion dollar revenues just didn't deem them big enough, important enough, global enough for them to invest in. So we said there's got to be an opportunity here to do it better, to partner with those teams, to prioritize them first and foremost, try and create higher quality products, but really bring this digital first data-led mindset to them, which I don't think it's controversial to say hadn't been massively prevalent in the industry before with that mindset, we were able to partner with some amazing teams, help them grow their revenues, help them internationalize, help them connect better with fans, not just domestically, but internationally. And we worked out that that model worked not just by, growing the revenues for teams, which is fantastic in different sports, football, rugby, cricket, motorsport, but also it would help us grow the Castor brand because you're getting this amazing brand visibility and and awareness and volume of eyeballs, but it's giving your brand a stamp of approval, a credibility that is hard to replicate by traditional marketing. It's one thing for me to tell you on Facebook via an advert that my hoodie's great. But when you see someone wearing it, an elite athlete wearing it day in, day out, that gives it a stamp of approval. So the Castor brand growth accelerated. And it was at that point, once we'd proven that model and it took us a while, it's a tough market. It's operationally very intense. But once we'd worked that out, we realized that, okay, there's a huge opportunity for us here. But in order to really capitalize on that opportunity and become a truly global brand, we need investment.
0: We need more capital to allow allow us to invest strategically and invest for the long term that acceleration is kind of an embodiment of the move fast break things right and it's fair to say that there are loads of great deals that have come through but there's also been some challenging ones as well so um, I know we've Aston Villa is probably the the one that there's most frequently cited it's going to be part right of building a brand at scale and at speed having partnerships like that so what's the the attitude internally to that and sort of how have you sort of Do you take that on board as part of that entrepreneurial mindset to be like, you know, that's fine. That happens. It's going to be part of it. And this is how we're going to overcome it.
1: You've got to have humility. So you've got to look yourself in the mirror, recognize where improvements can be made and try your best to fix things, to make things better. That's not uh, any kind of specific issue or challenge that's just a mindset that you have to have sport we're all all of us so lucky to make a living in such an exciting sector there's so many positive things about sport one of the challenges is it's intensely scrutinized you can't have the good without accepting those aspects as well so i see it as a real positive in the sense that all of us we all learn more from your setbacks or challenges than you do your runaway successes because when you're successful you think oh brilliant let's go and do more of that you don't really stop to think about why and how how and what can we do to improve so you've got to have humility the the ability to look yourself in the mirror and fix things when when there are problems and there are challenges. When you're disrupting huge multinational incumbent brands that are really happy with the status quo, it's inevitable that you're going to have challenges. So you can't let it blow you off course. You can't get too pent up by it. You just have to be really rational and logical in how you go about and fix things. Equally, the challenges that we have, which we do have challenges, the big brands have exactly the same challenges. The difference is when you're a challenger brand, everyone likes putting them out to you. And it does give me a wry smile that whenever we're lucky enough to have positive press, we do get a good amount of positive press. No one sends it to me. As soon as you get some challenging press, everyone I've ever met loves forwarding it on to me on WhatsApp and saying, just checking you've seen this mate. So it's just par for the course. You've got to learn from it. These challenges will always make you better equally you can't let it get to you in a big way because these things happen when you're operating in a market that we are
2: when you've positioned yourself in that kind of premium sportswear space though and you get the challenges like you had with villa and like some of the headlines were particularly flattering about what the kind of the quality of the uh, what the quality of the like the products were like does that does that give you a knock when you go into that next negotiation or is it literally a case of the people inside the industry Know know what this is. Know what the kind of know what the deal is. Know how these challenges occur.
1: You've hit the nail on the head with the latter. So, anyone in the industry knows how this industry works. The reason that Castor has been able to have the success that we have, and kind of raise the money that we have, and got to the valuation that we have, and the revenue growth that we've had is because the market wasn't working. So all of the clubs or many of the clubs that we've partnered with were dissatisfied with the status quo. We've managed to fill a gap and deal with that level of dissatisfaction. So everyone that I speak to in the the industry, again, you've got to have humility. You can't try and bullshit and say, oh no, there wasn't a problem, it's all made up. You have to fix problems where problems arise. But people in the industry understand that these problems are inevitable when you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of units and elite athletes working in different climates and temperatures and humidities and all the rest of it. So as long as you deal with these things in the right way, people that understand the industry are really understanding and accepting of that. Probably kind of similarly to, as I said earlier, about when you're starting out, If people can see that you're passionate about what you're doing,
2: they want to give you the benefit of the doubt. It's very similar here. I'm not expecting you to break any news here, but from next season, right, you lose Newcastle and Villa to Adidas. I don't know if the Villa one's been fully confirmed yet. Does that mean you're going to be going back out into looking at like the other Premier League clubs that are coming onto the market? Or have you kind of tested the water with the Premier League and maybe taken a step back from it?
1: No, I think we want to partner with people where we genuinely believe we can add value if you have the success that we've had you'd be naive to think that the big brands are not going to react so we know that we've been on adidas in particular like nike are the runaway leaders they're the kings of the market and have been for a long time adidas are an interesting one i think because psychologically they were the number one in the market they had a multi-decade start on nike and have been completely dominated by nike so i think for adidas they look down a lot more than they look up at nike they almost see it as a an impossible task to challenge nike so they've kind of stopped trying but i don't know if that's right or wrong i'm not the ceo of adidas nike don't look down at anyone else they they only look into the future that's why they lead the market they're more innovative than adidas they've had the success that they've had but for castor when you disrupt the market as we have and you break a status quo and you try and be innovative and disruptive and different it would be silly to not think that you're going to get pushback so that doesn't put me off that isn't a challenge that i find overtly difficult i love the competitiveness the fact that adidas are thinking about castor if you said that to me seven years ago when my mum remortgaged the house i would have thought you were crazy so we want to we know that we're making a positive impact in this market we're offering clubs something that is different volkswagen don't like tesla you wouldn't expect them to adidas don't like us i wouldn't expect them to i can live with that i want to create great products build a great brand try and add value to teams and there's no doubt in my mind that we're going to be able to continue to do that next season and for many seasons to come any hints on with who i'd love to give you guys an exclusive but i'd get told off if i did that
0: so (laughs) tom's journalist knows coming through (laughs) we've got we've got a few interesting things in the pipeline we're not bored at castor that's for sure (laughs) the partnerships that tom referenced that's quite product focused as well but one of the interesting and differentiating parts of castor is the sort of the vertical partnership model so can you talk me through and for our listeners who might not understand what that is exactly what the nature of a vertical partnership model is and and why that gives you a bit of a competitive advantage compared to, you know, some of the big dogs you talked about earlier.
1: Yeah. So the market historically had been very, as I said, wholesale led in the, the brand would manufacture the product. They'd then sell it into the wholesale market, the retailer or the club and the club or the retailer would then sell that product onto the fan. So there was three parties to the relationship, the brand, the club and the retailer you don't need to have gone to Oxford and have a degree in advanced mathematics to know that if you can take three parties and merge them into two parties, that's more margin for those two parties to share. So what we recognized, we'd built Castor for about five years at this point. We'd built a global supply chain, a global distribution network and a global technology platform. We recognized that we could leverage that infrastructure and apply it to sports whereby we would partner with teams but rather than just pay to have our logo on the chest and sell the product into retailers at a wholesale margin we could operate the website we could sell that product directly to the fan in the process you fundamentally change the margin dynamics, the economics in those partnerships. But most importantly, you have that direct data coming in. You can understand what buying habits are like. You can understand what fan behavior is like. And over time, you can build a model that is better geared towards servicing those fans. So it's not just financially more attractive. There's more margin to share, which the club benefits from, particularly very topical at the moment in an age where financial fair play is being implemented in a way that, I don't think it ever has before. If you can offer a club something that is more financially attractive, that's going to be really appealing to them. Beyond that though, and I would argue even more importantly, if you can show the club that data is being understood, analysed in a way that it never has before, and you can share that feedback with them, that is going to add value way beyond the specific sphere of the kit partnership. So being focused on data and sharing that with the club and understanding the learnings that come from how fans interact,
0: not just domestically, but globally. That's where the real value is in this. Moving from the sponsorship to the partnership realm, we talk about this all the time when it comes to to sponsors and branding in particular, that it's not really good enough anymore just to slap a logo on a sports property these days and expect the results. But how deeply embedded do you find your Data analytics teams, your digital teams with the clubs that you're working with as a almost a synergistic department, so that not only can that deliver results now and you know strong financial results, strong engagement results, but actually when it comes to those renewal conversations it's really easy because you're almost negotiating with your own team in a sense
1: the key to all of this is that you ch- you fundamentally change the dynamic whereby you go from being a sponsor to a partner. It sounds like a really simple change but that's such a fundamental change you're sharing data you're sharing information you're sharing skill sets and personnel and knowledge it's a very very big change from how the market has worked historically i wouldn't say there's any singular uh, catch-all answer to that we operate in football rugby cricket formula one more broadly different motorsport categories it it really depends on the sport and the team as to how integrated we become where that team is on in terms of their own journey in terms of how they want to understand data and what they do with that but there's no doubt whatsoever in my mind that this is a one-way direction of travel all teams across the sporting pyramid across the different categories across different geographies are all moving in one direction which is you have to understand your fan better than anyone else you have to have that direct relationship you have to own that data
2: that comes through these partnerships with that model um it's kind of kind of similar to fanatics but minus the licensing element is that a kind of other way of putting it in that they basically they run the the e-commerce for a, a store or a team or a league but they they license the branding from whoever the the rights holders partners are but therefore yeah it increases that profit margin is that then what goes into so you see a top level price for a deal is that was that all priced into that agreement so if we saw i don't know i can't remember what the figure was for uh rangers it might have been like 20 million pounds was like the reported fee but is that all priced into that overall value when it comes out at the other end I'd love to see where these numbers come from that
1: get reported <laughs> often because I I, I'm, I think I've yet to see one that's accurate. But Fanatics, to my mind, and they're good business in many ways and particularly in the US, but where we're different from Fanatics is that we manufacture the yeah. product ourselves. We're a brand, so the value that I'm receiving from a partnership with let's Rangers, to use your example, I'm getting my logo on the chest every time they kind of play on Sky Sports or they're in the Europa League. I'm selling more Castor t-shirts and hoodies off the back of that partnership. That is incredibly valuable to me. That is this huge growth potential for Castor as a brand. And these partnerships are a vehicle that help me drive that growth. So I can look at these partnerships economically in a very different way than someone like a Fanatics can, where they're just a platform. In addition to that, Fanatics need to work with either a Castor or a Nike or an Adidas who are manufacturing the product, who sell it to them. The club needs to earn a margin on whatever they're selling, which again, three parties rather than two means that the margin is being diluted. So I guess the principle is the same. We're all thinking about doing the same things. How do you digitize kind of these revenue streams, how do you better engage with and connect directly with fans and the opportunities that that will open up. But we are thinking about it in a in a slightly different way. And I think I'm right in saying that Castor is the only truly vertically integrated model
0: in this market, which is a big reason that we've had the success that we have. Speaking of that vertical integration partnership, a big chunk of that investment that you received in November was to grow a new geographical markets as well. Can you give us an insight into which of those that you're targeting and why?
1: Yeah, so again, this comes back to the genesis of Castor being a digital brand. We've now got eight years of data. I'm just going to sound really boring here on. I keep using that word, but it is the reality telling us where our customers are. This is not a, we like the idea of, south america so let's go over there we have data that tells us where our customers are so you start to utilize that and think okay well where are markets where we know people like the brand you then overlay that with maybe the more qualitative things that are happening and using your entrepreneurial intuition and say The Middle East looks like a really interesting market. We know that we sell a lot of product in the Middle East already for Castor. You look at what's going on in Saudi, the investments that are being made in infrastructure uh, in places like Qatar and the UAE, the long-term focus that politicians have over there on driving sports, on making it part of their economies, on getting their local residents more kind of healthy and focused on, on sports you don't need to be a rocket scientist to to think maybe that's an interesting place for us to be so the Saudi Premier League being the most obvious example these things all go on their own growth trajectories and no one in the world knows exactly how these growth trajectories will play out but we will take a view on where we think Castor can add value which markets are ripe for digital disruption where there's going to be ever-growing focus on on the sports that, that we're interested in. So the Middle East is definitely an interesting market for us. Australia has always been a fantastic market and, and one that I think the big brands have historically overlooked. The Far East, places like China and Japan and South Korea are very interesting. Equally, it's very easy to say those words. Each of those markets have their local nuances. So working out how you build a business and execute a business plan in those markets is where the challenge is and we need to be your my big focus is on making sure that we're disciplined we absolutely have the ambition for castor to be a
0: global brand but we need to be disciplined in how we execute against that strategy so is it fair to say the middle east is the primary focus for now purely from a customer acquisition side or is there also interest in investor partners from there
1: Investor partners, I guess the old-fashioned saying of the best time to to fix a roof is when the sun is shining – Kind of the best time to raise money is when you least need it. So we're not actively in the market to raise funds at the moment. Equally, we met a lot of people through the fundraising that we closed last year that I'll keep in touch with. And you never know what the future holds. If you're an ambitious business, you're always on the lookout for the next partner. That's the nature of how we operate. So again, clearly the sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East have put a huge amount of money to work in recent years as they diversify their economies away from fossil fuels, sports and tourism clearly will play a big role in that. So is there a place for Castor within those macro trends and within that ecosystem? I think that's a really interesting question that I'm interested to work out the answer to in the years ahead. So the Middle East is definitely interesting equally, and and I'm 34 years old. A lot of stuff I'm working out as I go along to a degree and using intuition there was a time where Russia was the future and everyone talked about Russia. There was a time where China was the future and everyone talked about China. These things do move in cycles. My job is to make sure that we're at the forefront of the next cycle, not, not doing what everyone else is talking
2: about. One thing I'd like to go into, actually, rather than like territories, is sports verticals. Probably the biggest news coming out of the sportswear sector in the first part of January was the Tiger Woods splitting from Nike in golf. It's kind of whispers that that might be part of a bigger pull out of golf. I mean, they no longer make clubs, which they stopped doing several years ago. Uh, I know you guys had deals with Matt Fitzpatrick and Patrick Reed, But is that something And with your kind of like premium sportswear positioning? Is that somewhere that you would look to go back into in a bigger way if Nike were, and others were to pull out?
1: We love golf. Golf's a fantastic category for us, but something that's really important to understand about golf is that the customer generally purchases physically rather than digitally. So anyone who's a golfer will know that if you are care enough about golf that you're a member of your local club, every club has a pro shop. So there is product available in that club shop and players like to support their local club shops, So they'll buy that product physically, which again there's a lot of people that are very good at third-party retail our expertise is digital golfers do tend to buy slightly differently that doesn't mean that it's not a market that we can go after it absolutely is and it's one that we do really really well in and we really like but compared to other sports tennis being one paddle clearly very nascent but growing incredibly quickly the consumer the customer demographic of those sports is slightly different than golf so I guess, as I said, with geographies, they all have their different nuances. Sports verticals also have their different nuances that you need to
0: navigate. Looking at those verticals, I know Castles has also opened its bricks and mortar stores now. Um, So... What was the the sort of the rationale there? And is that an important vertical that is going to continue to grow? And secondly, talking about Tom's example there with golf and Nike pulling out of building equipment, is equipment a vertical that you're looking to move into? Yeah, both really interesting. So stores,
1: absolutely, yes. We really like stores. We will absolutely open more stores. I think when you expand internationally, which is very much one of our big priorities strategically opening a physical store in that market is a real indication of intent. Customers can go on your website and it's important to have local languages, local currencies, a distribution center set up so that you can service that market seamlessly. They're significant investments. And it's really important to have that, but a physical store where someone can come in, experience your brand can touch and feel and try on the product that offers a consumer something that no matter how good your website is or how interactive it is, it cannot replicate that. So we really like stores, particularly when we're entering new markets and that doing the two combined, launching a localised website, a localised marketing campaign, but augmenting it with a physical store opening. It is a strategy that's worked very well for us and, and I hope and expect will do going forward. So stores, we absolutely do like Equipment, I would very much put in that category of balance between ambition and discipline. So, is there scope for us to look at equipment? Yes, I think there is. Is that one of the low hanging fruit before? If if I'm thinking about building a global brand, is doing equipment going to be the thing that gets me there? I'm not sure it is in the short term. So, it's always a balance that I think any entrepreneur kind of constantly grapples with everything that you get excited about and you want to do. And and particularly for for Castor, we're growing quickly. We're profitable. We're cash generative. We've raised money. There's a risk that you spread yourself too thin and you try and do too much. So we want to create the best sportswear in the world. We want to partner with great teams and help them unlock value And ultimately, we want to be a British sportswear brand competing on the global stage. I'm not sure equipment helps me achieve those
0: things in the short term, medium term, let's see. You talk about those conflicting, getting excited about conflicting ideas. And what's the dynamic like with your brother there? I mean, is there one of you that's sort of throwing out the let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And the other one reining it back in or is there, but are you sort of both singing from similar hymn sheets a lot of the time?
1: We're both quite similar, but at risk of contradicting myself also different in some pretty fundamental ways as well. So I guess the benefit of being brothers, and there's quite a few examples, I think, in business where brothers or sisters have created something and been really successful. I think the benefit that you have is that implicit trust, which is so important whenever there's a big decision, you can have a really robust Tough conversation about it, knowing that you're not going to fall out. You can be super honest, you're going to be brothers. At the end of the day whatever happens so having that implicit trust i think is incredibly valuable you might disagree as you're going through the debate but once a decision's made there's no you or me it's just we we've made the decision we need to make it a success so i think that's really powerful and then phil and i are just incredibly lucky that we've got very different skill sets like i enjoy being out in the world meeting people doing podcasts, <laughs> doing podcasts. No, the, the slightly tongue-in-cheek way that we describe it is it's my job to bring revenue into the business, and it's Phil's job to turn that revenue into profit and cash flow. So, his skill set, and I think what he enjoys is being operationally, logistically, systems, technology, supply chain, those things. Whereas, if I'm in the office, for two days on the bond. So I start to get itchy feet. I need to be out in the market meeting people, working out opportunities that we can do something that other people are not doing. So hopefully between us, we cover more bases certainly than we would individually, that's for sure.
0: I wanna finish with looking ahead to the future. I know that the investment round valued Castor nearly a billion pounds. What does the dream look like for you, for Castor? Is it an IPO? Is it, you know, continued growth in that disciplined way that you've mentioned? What's the end game? I mean, the IPO one is, I get asked that question all the time and I just think it's difficult
1: as an entrepreneur and the founder of a business to be excited about the prospect of an IPO. If you look at valuations for FTSE 100, 250 AIM companies, they're way below their American peers. They're often way below their Asian peers. So you're not getting a valuation benefit from that and you have to put up with a huge amount of, Challenge in for in the form of governance, and if you're reporting numbers quarterly, I completely understand why investors need that, but it makes it a lot harder for a founder to make long term decisions and I think one of Castor's core competitive advantages is that we can make long term decisions if if I think that whether it's a geographic market or a technology or a way of interacting with fans or a product vertical is really exciting, but it might take me two, three, four years to bring that to fruition and for it to pay off. I can do that now. I'm not sure I would be able to do it if we were a publicly listed company where the risk is that you only focus on short term, I call it sugar rush, the things that give you a buzz in the short term, but might not be the right thing in the long term. So I mean, never say never, but IPO is just one that I struggle to get excited about. People often talk to me about, oh, would the big brands just try and buy you out of the market? And again, I just struggle to see that that's the end of this story. I don't see that that being the direction that we ever go in, where my brother and I have literally put blood, sweat and tears into to making Castor what it is today. We've still got so much room still for growth. I truly, at risk of sounding clichéd, but truly believe that we're only just finding our feet and working out how we can really create value for customers and fans and teams and build a global brand. And I'm still so excited to wake up every day. So I know that we can continue to grow. The ambition hasn't changed from the start, which is to be a global brand. I love brands like McLaren, Burberry and Bentley, the British champions that are truly global. Like that's what I want Castor to be. And I don't care how long it takes me to get there. I'm not going to stop. We we always say better never stops. That's our brand maxim. That's our DNA. I, I'm not going to stop until we get there. So there isn't an end as far as I'm concerned. There's nothing else I'd rather be doing. The question is, what is the best way for us to to get as far as we can, whether that's taking investment from sovereign wealth, different private equity from different parts of the world hopefully if I build or we build a great business, there's going to be plenty of options out there for us. Uh, we'll deal with them when we get to them. If you're focused on the inputs rather than the outputs, you generally can't go wrong in life.
2: If there was um, one big property rights holder sport that you could tomorrow go and do a handshake deal with and be you're going to be the new supplier for that thing what would it be like just talk, like just being absolutely hypothetical this doesn't have to be in any way realistic if, for the immediate term anyway
1: it's, it's a great question and it's the exact question that i would ask if i was a journalist but you'll have to forgive me for for pleading the fifth on that one because <laughs> there's no way of me answering that without it creating headlines that i probably don't really want to create so uh, i guess in all seriousness we're so lucky that we now have a platform and we have a brand that legitimately can go and have conversations with some of the best teams in the world that doesn't mean you're going to win everything that you want to win this is a competitive market i love that bring it on i want to be competing with the big guys so i think i can offer teams and i think i can offer customers something that Nike and adidas cannot is the sports market and the sportswear market better for Castor challenging a Nike than Adidas I think that unequivocally it absolutely is so as long as I can keep adding value hopefully there's going to be a lot of exciting
0: things still to come for Castor Well we look forward to to tracking the journey Tom thank you very much for taking time out of the schedule to come and chat to us and uh, hopefully not the last time. Appreciate it guys, thanks for having me enjoyed it. Thanks guys